I'll I'll take oh, care of it. Oh shit! Like, what's that? I started record. I gotta restart my recording. Yeah, why? Because I told it to record in stereo instead of mono. Oh. Or instead of my mic, so it's like it's recording one track of me and one track of silence. <laughs> oh, okay. So. Yeah, well, just um, uh, don't get rid of it. You know. Why? I don't know. For fun, okay. keeping stuff for the sake of it's like uh, it's like prosperity, poster, pros, prosperity, pron, pron. I'm inventing, I'm inventing a new thing. It's posterity gospel. Oh, instead of prosperity gospel. I haven't decided what it is yet, but that's it's. it's Isn't that thing. where they justify rich people being rich because God chose them? That's right. It's it's it is it's it's literal determinism. It's like uh, you wouldn't. It, it's 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 honestly it's it's just like neo Calvinism, basically, which makes sense because America. But like it's 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 just the same exact literally feudal arguments of the reason the powerful are powerful is because they're divine rate of kings like right yeah it's yeah essentially but instead of kings in this case is it's you know millionaire preachers justifying well and that too yeah um yeah no that shit sucks it's it's like but it is also kind of the perfect reflection of like the way that the mode of production can shape like even things you would think are solely ideological, like doctrine of uh, various religions. Um, well, I've seen, I mean, I've just seen so many like uh, revolutionary religious folks that there is no way that I can see religion the way that like the, you know, popular like American notion of Christianity or anything else really is. Cause uh, all that seems like fucking nonsense when you actually look at what a lot of the religions are supposed to stand for. And, you know, these, like, more religious, revolutionary folks are are like, no, actually, uh, we do care about people, and we want a better world, and uh, we're willing to fight for it. And then, uh, so, uh, j- I just think that everybody else is uh, speaking nonsense, because that sounds like some uh, some of the the good styles of religion. You know, I mean, I don't disagree, but they're they're things do seem to be weighed a lot heavier one way or the other because of the structural support that one side of that argument gets from the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like there are also fucking capitalists who consider themselves revolutionaries. So, uh, you know, there's well, yeah, it's like those um those fucking I think E Trade ads where they'll just be like. You, you know, you can work extra hard this year so your boss can buy a second boat. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why, why does this ad have class consciousness? And then it's like, and that's why you need an E-Trade account so you can be a boss. And I'm just like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> like they were, you are weaponizing what should be something that makes people think about, hmm, perhaps this system is structured in a way which is bad and we should change that instead to, what if you could profit from the rod of the system? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. That shit sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, but I guess uh, we probably should do that intro. Yeah.
Welcome to Work Stoppage, your favorite podcast on the rod of the system. I'm Lena. That's right. I'm Dan. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so if you'd like to help us out, it means so much to us if you'd go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and uh, shoot us five bucks. It's how we do the show, and then you get a bunch of access to all the overtime episodes, and we're doing the ser- short series on the history of general strikes in the United States, so, you know, it's a really important history to learn. Jump in the Discord if you're not in there, because, uh, as John likes to say, it's free. And also, John's right. <laughs> You know, message us on Patreon if you don't have stickers and write us a review anywhere. Uh, John is not with us today. He is busy. He's taking one of his 102 personal days. Uh, (laughs) I mean, John is still, John's still with us, like in the the broader sense. That's true. (laughs) John is fine. (laughs) He's just uh, (laughs) under the weather today. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as it, uh, and we've got a really good, uh, like, contract here you basically can take any day off and still get paid in full so yeah, John, we definitely we have uh work stoppage definitely was on that infinite sick days train like real early <laughs> yeah uh but yeah i mean just to get going i guess we're gonna start with a follow-up of the rutgers strike that one that had all basically all of the unions striking at once uh they actually came to what is called what is being called a framework for a tentative agreement and honestly it's pretty good uh yeah yeah, yeah. You, you you go for it dan yeah so this this scenario is a little weird because it's as of recording i believe i'm not exactly 100% up on on, on twitter for the last few hours, because <laughs> I just got out of work. But um, as of today, Monday, uh, April 17th, is the day we're recording, the Rucker strike has been suspended What because the bargaining team has reached a framework for a tentative agreement with the administration and also, by extension, the state of New Jersey, since uh, Rutgers is, of course the public university of New Jersey and therefore is primarily publicly funded. So the state was always kind of mixed up in these negotiations. So it's, it's not that they have a tentative agreement and the strike has stopped. It's they've reached a framework on several key items around which to build a tentative agreement, which they got agreement from the state for. Uh, There's a lot of details. I've seen a lot of discussions back and forth on various internet platforms, like on Reddit and some other places, some threads and stuff. People talking about the various ins and outs, but I haven't actually seen any official reporting on any of that yet. So I don't want to dive into any of that where I can't verify any of that. So uh, this is still very much an ongoing process. Yeah, it's because uh, we base- only report facts. That is, we are a facts-based podcast. <laughs> right. Facts are things where they may not be facts, but I'm not worried about us being called on them. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but the reason I want to be like a little precise on that one is that you know the decision to pause or end a strike before workers have had a chance to vote on a new contract is always, of course, a controversial one. It's it, There's an inherent amount of Uh, lack of democracy in that sort of a situation. I will say, however, there's also a lot of like contingencies that you could see justifying that in this case, the, 
one of the things that we talked about when the workers launched this strike, and this is, of course, the first faculty strike in Rutgers' 257-year history, was that part of the reason we felt this strike would be effective and likely would come to a quick resolution is because of the workers' choice of timing of the strike in order to maximize their leverage. They decided to go on strike just three weeks before the end of the semester and the time where people are going to have finals, you're going to be giving out grades. And so it put a huge amount of pressure on the administration to settle a deal so that they wouldn't have to drastically postpone things like graduation or risk people not getting grades. So there was a lot of that that served to really push this both the school administration and in relation the state to come to the table. On the flip side of that though, once you reach an agreement that then kind of pushes things the other way because it gives the state basically the ability to say, all right, look, we agreed to some of your demands or whatever. Now you have to make, like, you have to sign this agreement within a short time period because it's contingent on being able to have the rest of the semester without, you know, major disruption. So, you know, there's always two sides to that. But, uh, and we'll, but the thing is, ultimately, I believe, like, the, the test, the way we're really going to know the real pulse of the workers is going to ultimately be the vote when there is a tentative agreement finalized on these issues and it goes to the workers for their final yay or nay on whether to accept the contract. Uh, I know that can be kind of a frustrating take where it's just like, oh, I'm not declaring one way or the other if I think like suspending the strike was good or not. But it's, I think we won't, it, it's, it's too soon for us who are not part of the strike to really be able to tell. Yeah, but there are a lot of things that have been talked about in this framework that are some of the biggest demands that these workers have been talking about since before they launched the strike. Yeah, yeah, we got some details from Rebecca Given, who's the president of the union, who uh, had just announced some of these details. Rutgers President Holloway provided additional details And uh, I guess combined, the deal includes 48% pay increase for adjunct faculty by 2025, 33% increase for uh, uh, teacher's assistants, and what's the GA? I think GA is graduate assistant. Right, yeah. Uh, If you're, jump in the Discord and let us know what a GA is. Uh, Their increase is uh, is going up to $40,000, a year in 2025-2026. There's a 27.9% increase for postdoctoral fellows and associates, 14% increase in salaries for full-time faculty and counselors by 2025. And I, I guess what is this? What is what is presumptively renewable contracts for non non-tenure track faculty? So I I can just jump in and explain that one if you want. Yeah, that's why I'm asking. Or, or- Oh, well, I didn't, I meant like to the audience. I'm not cutting this. Oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. (laughs) Well, they can hear all the the stuff we talk about when you don't cut stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so presumptively renewable contracts. So this was one of the issues about job security. Because one of the things that we've talked about so much with adjunct faculty, part-time laborers, which is still part of adjunct faculty, but sometimes they use different words. Uh, but, and, and, and any, basically any faculty member who doesn't have tenure and isn't on the tenure track, 
one of the things that is so difficult for those workers is the fact that their contracts are usually year to year and sometimes even semester to semester where they have to reapply either every semester or every year and go into that application period not knowing if their contract is going to be renewed or if not, and they might have to scramble to apply somewhere else. So that has been something that is constantly weighing on adjunct faculty. And so one of the things that has apparently been secured as part of the framework for this, the the tentative agreement that's being built here is that instead the assumption will be that automatically that these contracts for non-tenure track faculty will renew rather than that they would expire. Right. So basically it means that if they're going to be let go, they will get let they'll they'll be told much ahead of time. Right. They have to have much more notice. I've I have seen some stuff indicating also that the contracts will have a longer um presumed length for part-time lecturers specifically, that instead of having like a semester-long or a year-long contract, that they may have two-year or even four-year contracts, depending. I have not seen that confirmed yet. I just saw that today. So I don't know if that's 100% true. But that's the sort of thing that these are talking about. It's job security for non-tenure track faculty so that they don't have to constantly be unsure every single semester if they're going to have to reapply for their own jobs. Yeah, that's that's pretty important and really uh, also kind of plays into the job security for adjunct faculty, right? Right, right. Yeah. And I also liked one of the things they also had on here, which I've started to see and mostly in academia, uh, but at a few places, which is protection against caste discrimination, which is that's really cool uh, and 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 good to to put in there. I think that was also I think that was something that um I think the MIT grad student union was was fighting for stuff like that, and I believe there's some other grad student unions who have also been fighting for that. Yeah, well, but what does cool. that what does that mean? So caste discrimination refers uh, now again. This is based on my knowledge of the subject. I don't know precisely what language is going to be in the the Rutgers. A contract, but this is relating to basically like in India, the caste system where you had traditionally, especially during the feudal era, you know, you had people just get divided functionally. Like I think the comparison for, for Americans listening would, would be similar to racial discrimination, but it's not based on race. It's based on caste, which is and I'll, it's not something I have a very strong historical understanding of. I have a very, very high level like understanding of how that works, but it's, it's essentially another way of discriminating against people based on the status of their birth. Uh, cause you know, you have law, there's been a long fight in India for rights for people in these lower castes. Like, uh, you know, there's the, people may have heard of like the untouchables as like a, a cast of like the, at the bottom of the rung of this like feudal, uh, social hierarchy. Um, so the idea here is that it's like is to to have specific language that basically says like you can't discriminate against people in hiring but also in working with them day to day for reasons of it's it's adding on to the list of things it's like you can't discriminate against people based on circumstances of their birth which includes things like race, gender identity, like re- re- religion depending, like all these all these other things. So this goes on to that in an area that's commonly not addressed in most U.S. law, most U.S. workplaces. So I think that's a, a, a cool thing that, that that they have been fighting to get. Yeah, yeah, that that is that rocks. I mean, if there's you know discrimination anywhere, you know you got to fight it everywhere. Um, so 
I guess a statement from the union said the agreement framework also includes pay increases for postdoctoral workers, our first common good demands to center our students and communities, greater faculty control over teaching conditions, including scheduling, and a common contract including academic and medical faculty, which uh, yeah, which that that rocks. Yeah, that common contract. Uh, obviously, all of this is asterisk. We still have to see the final agreement, but that would be really cool because, like you know, these these the workers specifically organized together so they could strike together, and if they're able to have common, co- even if it's just like common contract expiration dates, and whether it's on one contract or not, that gives the workers more leverage in future strikes because they can do this again. So that's really awesome, and I think. One of the things, of course, it's always important to compare these agreements to is what were the workers asking for before they went on strike. And so, you know, as we've covered this over the uh, the last few weeks, the things that have popped out are often the same things we hear from academic workers across the country. It, low pay for adjunct workers and graduate workers. Uh, and those seem to be like the biggest single wins of, of what we've heard so far from the framework. So those are those seem to be absolutely addressed. Job security for non-tenure tracked and adjunct faculty. Those, I mean, the, the presumptively renewable contracts, potentially longer contracts, those seem to have been addressed. And then more pathways to tenure for faculty. Now, I haven't seen uh, any indication that that last item has been addressed, although I also don't know that I've seen that be addressed in a lot of other contracts. I think it's a very good demand to fight for, but that's of those major key demands that we heard about before the strike. Those are the, that's the one that only one that I haven't seen addressed from the stuff that I've read about this framework. The, the, and the only other one is because of the fact that this is three unions in one, it's the faculty union, the adjunct union, and then there's like a biomedical worker uh, union for work. I think it's for like mostly for like researchers and uh, that are on campus. I haven't seen much in the way of the raises for th- that last group, the the those research workers. So those are the only things I haven't really seen ad- addressed at all in this framework. And we'll of course keep people posted when we hear more uh, news about it. But even just like, for instance, the increase for TAs and GAs, the minimum that workers had identified wanting to fight for that I had seen before the strike was a $36,000 salary, which is of course still pretty low, but would be a uh, 20% increase from their current pay of $30,000. But what we've seen is actually a 33% increase to $40,000, basically uh, a raise of about like $3,300 a year for the, the next three years. So, uh, we, we can't really say for sure until we see the full contract, until we see the workers vote, which will be the ultimate test. But it looks like this framework has managed to hit most of the key demands and, and specifically also to focus the biggest increases for the lowest paid workers, which is, you know, of course, all what these workers always are fighting for. So I, those all seem pretty good to me. I, now, I, I've seen plenty of criticism of the fact that the bargaining team chose to suspend the strike before a, even a final tentative agreement was revealed. And yeah, there is something to that criticism because especially, you know, since it's a framework and not a tentative agreement, there is always the possibility that the governor could come in, 
be a mediator, sound all great, seems like everything's going to be excellent, get them to agree to suspend the strike, and then stab them in the back and go back on some of the things they agreed to. And if that happens, then, I mean, you know, then that tells you something I'm guessing the strike will intensify. That's what I would hope, but there is also the, you know, the the argument that is like once you suspend the strike, remobilizing is extremely difficult, which is is not wrong. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of considerations here to cover. So, we'll see what happens over the ne- over this week as workers review the te- as the tentative agreement is built, as workers review the tentative agreement, as workers discuss it. I know that Rutgers uh, the unions are having town halls throughout the week to uh, have folks make comment on what's uh, and to brief the the workers on the tentative agreement. So I think we'll be able to see workers speak out uh, if they really don't like it. And if we see a very narrow vote on the eventual contract, then that'll tell us that, you know, the, where there was a decent amount of worker discontent, if it's really, really high near unanimous, then that'll tell us that, you know, they're happy with the folks are happy with the deal that they got now it is that a perfect system for tracking what what the the best tactics to use are day to day i don't know not maybe not necessarily but that's what we have for folks who aren't on the ground so uh one of the things though that they you know the membership is the, the of the bargaining team is at least saying is that they fully intend to restart the strike if the the school goes back on what they say they're going to do. Uh, they put out a statement this weekend saying, quote, our historic strike got us to this point. And let us be clear, a suspension of our strike is not a cancellation. If we do not secure the gains we need on the open issues through bargaining in the coming days, we can and will resume our work stoppage. We also will continue putting significant pressure on the Rutgers administration to meet our needs, starting with informational pickets next week, end quote. So, I mean... We'll see. We'll see what happens. But I, I, I think that the the signs that we've seen on what these workers are going to get out of this contract, I think, are encouraging. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens when we f- see the final deal. Yeah. So we'll keep everyone posted on that uh, probably next week. Yeah, for sure. And uh, keeping speaking of keeping people posted, our next follow-up is going to be at the Medieval Times uh strike which is continuing and also because of the way that the company has been union busting it has revealed a pretty troubling uh you know series of common practices that basically are animal abuse so medieval times workers at buena park have been on strike for two months now and they've faced massive amounts of harassment from both the company and unfortunately from customers as well the strike has also exposed as i mentioned the culture of animal abuse at the company workers originally went on strike on february 11th to protest unfair labor practices and attempting to silence workers with with the frivolous lawsuit basically you know the the copyright infringement nonsense yeah. uh, and a refusal by the company to bargain with the workers. Uh, let's just quick do a little roundup of what is all going on. So to start immediately upon striking uh, the medieval time, medieval times hired a bunch of scabs to replace workers. And as reported by Dave Jamieson at the Huffington post, the company even tried to bring scab workers from their castle in Toronto all the way to Southern California to try to break the strike. 
That particular batch of scabs hit a snag when they were turned around because uh, at the or they were turned around at the border because the company did not get them visas to work in the United States, and uh, the workers told the Department of Homeland Security off uh, officials at the border, uh, likely because of misinformation provided by the company, uh, that the traveling into the country was specifically for quote unquote training. I mean. I'm sure a company will come up with any excuse to try to uh, uh, get people in as scabs, but uh, training seems kind of dubious. Yeah, like, look, I I can't prove this, so this is all allegedly, um, but it would not surprise me if, you know, they're scrambling. We got to get our scabs out there. We can't let a single show miss because we're obsessed with crushing these striking workers. And they're like, where can we get... Uh, other workers from other castles. Oh, well, we can't get them from any of these other ones because we don't properly staff any of our facilities, so everybody's already overworked. And so they're like, well, we can get people from Toronto. And then they, rather than take the time and file the paperwork to get the proper work visas, they're like, this will take too long. Uh, just tell them we're in the, the country for training. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does seem like that would be a uh, a pretty easy tactic for them to just because i mean businesses lie all the time to get around the law and Mm -hmm. uh because there there are really a lot of loopholes that they can just get away with nonsense like this and uh it just turned out that this particular lie didn't work but also because of the relatively scarce the, the relative scarcity of the workers trained in acting as well as intense physical stunt work and animal handling, the company has scrambled to find scabs to replace the knights who have been on strike. This has led them to uh, substituting horse trainers for knights. Uh, and this is like one of the, we told this story a couple of weeks back about the uh, person who was like, if you're not brave enough, you can go. And they said, all right, bye-bye. And uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was, shit was that, so great. This is very funny. <laughs> but, um, they're bringing in these outside trainers to fill these stable positions, and doing this has also ex- done this ha- has also exposed what you know I mentioned earlier was the animal neglect, uh, and it seems like this might be kind of just part of part of mis- medieval times like ongoing maybe not policy but just general practices. The uh, striking workers have posted videos of trainers aggressively whipping horses during the training sessions out of, you know, frustration, I guess. And others have posted photos of scars on horses and uh, used in in the, the performances. So it's pretty clear that the animals are not having a good time. I uh, can't wait for more of those people who uh, don't want animals to perform in the circus to get a hold of this and uh, start helping the workers, you know? Yeah, like, this part really, like, it really sucks. Like, the video, it just, because uh, I saw, I watched one of the videos that was, like, taken sort of surreptitiously. Uh, and, yeah, you can tell the trainer just is really mad that the horse isn't doing exactly what he wants it to do, and so he takes it out on the animal and is just, like, eating the shit out of it and it's just like what the fuck are you doing man like that's not you know the horse not does you train not under an animal yeah as I say the horse does not understand that yeah and so and yeah there have been all sorts of pictures posted of folks with like welts on the horses scars from whips and 
this is actually something that the striking workers have been trying to address. Like Jake Bowman, who's a knight on strike at the Buena Park Castle, he shared to Twitter the proposals for animal safety that the union had presented as part of their bargaining with medieval times. The proposals would develop safe standards of horse training with the involvement of the workers who actually do the horse training uh, to ensure the use of humane techniques and to prevent abuse. The company has uh, instead taken the tack they have with everything and just unilaterally rejected all of those proposals. Uh, Despite, again, nothing in those proposals being like, and you have to pay the horse trainers much, much more. It's, it's, they just won't agree to anything from the union, even if it's something as seemingly obvious as if you're going to run a business that uses trained animals, you should not abuse the animals. Yeah. Uh, Perico Montaner just loves animal abuse, uh, allegedly. So apparently, yeah, yeah. that's how it seems. Uh, because really, yeah, what it's exposing is, and I, you know, when we think about this on the structural level, it's not that surprising. Which is that, much like their workers, <laughs> medieval times considers the horses as expendable. There is basically part of the machinery that of medieval times that allows it to keep producing profit and making Perico Montaner incredibly rich. And so if that means that, you know, some of these horses get chewed up and spit out on the way and they get worn out through use, well, that's just a part of doing business. Yeah. And I mean, in addition to the violence against the animals, workers on the picket lines have faced violence as well with, uh, customers attacking them there was specifically a recent attack where uh where the workers were peacefully protesting and you know kind of slowing down traffic a little bit this happened back on april 13th and uh a customer physically assaulted the the uh one of the one of the workers who was on strike because of the the slowdown of the cars, they literally got out of their vehicle and and attacked the workers, punching and shoving and kicking them out of the way of the car, which then rammed its way through the picket line. The violence against picketers is uh, not a new thing to report from our show, but it is always a disgusting outcome from the comp- from a company's intransigence. Well, and this one was like especially frustrating for me because it wasn't a scab, which is bad enough. Like, as we all know, this scab is one of the lowest forms of life. But like, you expect violence against striking workers from scabs. It's kind of comes along with that level of, of, of terribleness. This was from a customer. And while we know that the customer is almost always wrong, it is always still extra frustrating to me to see this like like violence against workers from customers because it's just like you want the thing that they want to provide to you. They just want to provide you a better service because you have workers who are paid better and have insurance and are, you know, able to have a decent life and are thus able to put on a better performance for you. But because you're being delayed from your giant turkey leg and your big stupid mug of cheap beer, you get so fucking mad, you climb out of the vehicle and just assault a bunch of people because they slowed you down for five seconds? Like, that is a batshit way to approach this and it's just it's so frustrating and of course like what happens nothing like nobody cares about the violence against the workers but if the workers were to even like 
spray paint graffiti or something on the side of the building, they'd get, you know, locked up forever. Now, I'm not suggesting a carceral response to this. Just the disparity between the two is striking. Yeah. Yeah, it really sucks. And honestly, we really hope that if you happen to be in the uh, Buena Park area, you like go out and support the workers. They could really use some backup right now. Um, Absolutely. I know that we have some listeners out there in California, and I know that California is a big place, and I don't know anything about where the different places in California are, but I bet there's someone around there. Uh, yeah, if you're so. if you're in the L.A. area, because Buena Park is, is, as far as I can tell, is pretty near L.A., although L.A. seems to yeah, be like Yeah, it's in the heart of state. Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but if you're in that area, for sure, like, go out to the picket line, because, yeah, these folks could use some in-person solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. To go to our next story, which is not a follow-up, we're going to be talking about uh, some film setting issues on a cop movie. Yeah, so I I promise this is a labor story. (laughs) It's not just me wanting to do a story about movies because I'm a big nerd. Um, Or about cop movies because you wish they would never be made. Well, I mean that too. But... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or also Uwe Boll movies, because folks, this is this has got so many things about it. We've got labor struggles on the set. We've got a shitty movie about cops, about how hard their life is, I, whatever. Uh, and then you've also got meme director Uwe Boll, <laughs> uh, commonly famous for setting up a boxing match <laughs> against some of his more prominent online critics. <laughs> I don't know who this person is, but uh, just the the basic facts of this story make me think that this person should be kicked out of the industry. Yeah, no, Uwe Boll is a well-known hack uh, who is who is famous for making really bad uh, video game adaptations. Like he made Postal. I, th- I think he might have made Blood Rain. Uh, all his movies are bad. Uh, none of them are good. I honestly was shocked to hear that somebody gave him money to make another movie. Uh, I think this is his first movie in over a decade. But to get into why we're talking about this on work stoppage. So one of the big things that came out of the horrible tragedy that happened on the set of the movie Rust back at the end of 2021 with the horror, the horrific killing of Helena Hutchins when Alec Baldwin shot her with a prop gun that he believed was unloaded. Uh, that like horrific incident reinvigorated a fight that has been going on for a long time in Hollywood, which is the fight over whether or not to use real firearms with blanks on the film set or not. That has been a controversy for a very long time because you go back to even, you know, Brandon Lee being killed on the set of The Crow uh, by a blank because blanks in real firearms can still kill people. And now with modern CGI and modern electrically actuated prop guns, there has long been a campaign by a lot of folks, especially some of the, you know, behind the camera crew folks, to ban the use of real firearms because it's no longer really necessary even for a semblance of realism on the set. And that's where the labor issues come into play with this movie. So this is all coming out of a really, really great report from Alex Press at Jacobin uh, who talked to a lot of the the workers who had been on the set of this movie that Uwe Boll was filming in New York City who reached out because 
of this crisis of safety and this complete lack of any respect for firearm safety that continues to pervade a lot of the upper level folks in Hollywood. And so Press had spoken to numerous workers on the set of Uwe Boll's new movie, First Shift, which is a gritty NYPD cop drama that will assuredly be fucking terrible, uh, that has been filming in New York City over the past couple months. And those workers spoke with press anonymously because of threats of retaliation from both Uwe Boll himself as well as some of the film's producers. And a lot of this stems from an incident in early March uh, where one of the workers on the films in the film's electrical department noticed that one of the film's primary producers was walking around the set with a gun. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. No, and so guys, I'm pretty sure the armor is supposed to be in in handling all weapons at all times, except for in the case of a, a film. Uh, I don't want to say the word uh, in in case of a scene. You know, with that is actually in need of <laughs> yes. it. Right, and so when asked about it, the producer immediately said, "Oh no, no, this this is fake." This is rubber. This is nothing. They spin it around then, their finger and it goes off. Well, and then the the AD, the assistant director who was on set for that scene was like, uh, hey, can I can I look at that? <laughs> and he handed it to him, and the guy like flips open the cylinder, which first off, that's your first problem. <laughs> it's like, oh, if you could do that, probably might not be a fake gun. And then sees that it is fully loaded with blanks. And so he's walking around set with a real revolver that you can't tell is only loaded with blanks unless you are physically handling it, which is extremely unsafe. <laughs> and yet, despite the fact there are multiple witnesses to this, a member of the electrical department, an AD, as well as I believe one other crew member who was at the incident, the producer continues to maintain, even in discussions with Alex Press, that the gun was fake. And that those three other people are just all lying. <laughs> huh. Which, I'm just like, that's not believable, man. Like, why Why would that happen? <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that doesn't make any sense. And this is, yeah, this is a, a really worrying uh, action by this producer because nobody knows if that gun's real. The fact is, it is. So he's walking around set with a real firearm, not treating it safely at all, lying to people and telling them it's a fake gun. And not only is carrying around this real gun, but is carrying it around loaded. It doesn't matter if they're blanks. This guy's carrying around a loaded firearm, telling people it's fake. Extremely unsafe in every way. Yeah, I mean, blanks can still kill people. There is tiny little pieces that still come out. It's just that they are much less likely to kill people. It, they're, they are, uh, yeah, I don't need to go further into details it, on that. It, it's a real gun. You should treat it like a real gun at all times. And he, this guy was clearly not. And so, you know, this immediately freaked out a lot of workers for good reasons. And some workers questioned if the reason that the producer uh, brought the gun to the set that day was in response to an argument with a crew member the day prior, uh, where it got pretty heated. And others also identified this producer as having an unsafe uh, just history of behavior and total lack of concern for safety. And the set's prop master told Jacobin, quote, there was no good reason. So you're left with nothing else but to question the person's judgment. And as a result, your safety, end quote. And so the workers threatened to walk off the set if the producer, whose name I believe is Ari Taub, uh, was not removed. And 
several crew members then reached out to IATSE about the incident. And they're like, yo, what the fuck? Uh, we got to do something about this. And so first shift was a non-union set, but many of the crew members are members of IATSE. And so in response to multiple members of the set reaching out to them, the union asked workers if they wanted to go through the process of unionizing the set. Uh, and, and so at the same time this is happening, production workers just started saying, look, I'm not working with this producer again, if he's on set, I'm not on set, which is totally understandable because he's running around set with a fucking gun <laughs> and lying about it to people. Um, and so following this, the union sent the film production company a request for voluntary union recognition as well as like, cause they actually has like basically a standard form contract. That's like, if you're a union set, this is your standard union rates. Um, but at the same time, the director, Uwe Boll, stepped in and tried to sort of diffuse the situation. He, he like went down to talk to some of the workers involved and was like, no, I agree that he shouldn't have been doing that. He was being unsafe. That's bad. It's a big fuck up. We don't need to call the union. We can handle <laughs> this all in house. It'll be fine. Please don't talk to the union. <laughs> yeah, fucking. And. Unfortunately, so this is the sort of part where I always want to follow it up with, and the workers didn't listen, and they went on strike, and they got a union, and that's the end of the story. Unfortunately, because of how fast film sets tend to move, that's not what happened. But the other part, though, is not just the speed, but also the immediate level of repression on the film set in response to this union drive because workers declined <laughs> to rescind their safety complaints against this producer and also declined to withdraw their request for union recognition. And so in response, Uwe Boll just fired one of them claiming that she was not fulfilling her signed contract. That seems illegal. It is illegal. <laughs> you are correct. That is an unfair labor practice because she's clearly being fired for protected concerted activity. Uh, <laughs> this is all happening at the same time. He then also told the other crew members he hadn't fired that if they withdrew their safety complaints and their request for the union, he'd raise their pay by $50 a day. Yeah, you know, I just, I love sacrificing m my uh, potential life for 50 bucks a day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, most people didn't take that, but I also got to appreciate uh, the, there's this great quote in this article from uh, Sarah, in air quotes, the the worker who was fired. That's not her real name. It's a, it's a pseudonym. Um <laughs> And she described w how she responded to being fired, where afterwards she made sure to go talk to the rest of the crew and tell her, tell them about this. And she said, quote, I break into the conversation because at that point, I want everyone to know that all of the repercussions have started and I've been let go for speaking to the union. I also make it clear that I was let go because Uve is a punk ass bitch. <laughs> Seems true. <laughs> it's yeah, I would agree. And later that day, the other worker who had reached out to IATSE about the incident was fired by the producer who had caused the incident in the most professional manner possible with a text that read in all caps, you are fired with no other information. So Uve and, 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 and Ari are running a real tight ship here. This is when you say, sorry, I don't, I don't have this number saved, uh, blocked, and then you actually block them. <laughs> yeah. He, 
The producer also apparently threatened to fire the entire grip and electrical department in response to this. I mean, he claims he didn't do that, but he also claims a lot of other things that so I don't believe. So, um, unfortunately the timing on this just didn't work out for the workers. Like IATSE immediately did file ULPs against the production company that, that, um, this producer, you know, headed hit and run productions. What a name uh, for illegal. <laughs> yeah. For, uh, illegally interrogating workers about union organizing, which yep. And, and, and for threatening and then actually doing retaliation. Uh, and so like, Alex Press, the writer on this piece, who who Taub actually spoke to, which I was surprised. Usually, they just turn down the request for information, especially from like a a like you know social democratic publication like like Jacobin. She asked him directly about you know the the workers say you said this and you did this. What do you say to that? Also, some of these were recorded, and he just denied everything. <laughs> Like he just fucking lied. Like it, both both the the the, the Taub and and Uwe Boll, they just said no, that nope, none of this happened. The workers are all lying. Da 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 da. It's just bullshit. And but the Hollywood press has eaten all that up. I tried to like look into some of like the stories about this movie. The only thing I saw was where they interviewed uh, Uwe Boll and and some production like higher level people. None of these workers. So it's like only Jacobin and the left-wing press that is actually talking, and actually I think just Jacobin who's talked about this. Um, And unfortunately, while these disputes were going on, Bull and the producers of the movie were able to pull together enough uh, scab labor to finish out the last couple days of shooting they had left and wrap the production on March 19th. So those ULPs, I believe, are still outstanding, but unfortunately the shooting on the movie has already finished. Yeah, more proof that this movie is going to fucking suck. It is assuredly going to be absolute dog shit. Like, <laughs> there's no way this movie's going to be good. Um, but the thing is, the movie's already been shot. So this, from their perspective, should more or less be resolved. Like, the ULPs are still outstanding, and I'm sure they're not happy about that. But as we've seen, the you know actual consequences for ULPs in the U.S. are not that big. So... Um, but Bowl and, and the producer have continued to threaten fire, fired workers with defamation lawsuits in an effort to silence them. And they've even threatened to withhold payment for work already performed unless these workers recant their story about the unsafe firearm handling. Uh, hmm. That sounds yeah, like, uh, kind of fucked up. Uh, actually, you know what I'm seeing here? That we have a uh, quote from uh, quote-unquote James who said, uh, who was one of the workers who was fired, and uh, they said, quote, maybe I'm using an extreme word here, but that kind of sounds like extortion, end quote. And you know what? It kind of does sound like extortion. James, you're correct. That does sound like extortion. Uh, and, and, you know, in, so in the press bowl and, and Taub and, and, and some of the other, like even actors have, have since attacked the workers, denying the well-documented safety problems and trying to paint the crew as just malcontents, which is the exact same tack you see rich people often take when pointed out like that their wealth comes from exploitation. And they're just like, the poor are just jealous. <laughs> like it's the same thing. So this sucks. And, and, and like, the filming of the movie is over. It's in post-production. Bull is a hack, and so even though this is coming out, I don't expect this is going to rocket him into the mainstream of Hollywood or anything. 
But I think more importantly for us, because everyone will forget about this movie because it's horrific, I'm assuredly really fucking bad. But more importantly, this reflects a continuing safety problem in Hollywood. Because, like, it's not as if this is the only set where this sort of thing is still happening. And it needs to stop because if it doesn't, there's going to be more tragedies like the death of Helena Hutchins. And I, I think in a really, like, really well-summarized, like, uh, look at this, Sarah, the pseudonym for the, one of the other fired workers, told Alex Press, quote, in filmmaking, there's so much attention on the director and on the actors. And a lot of people don't realize that the ones who suffer for the entertainment, especially when there are safety concerns, are the crew. They don't get the support that people in front of a camera or people who are doing the interviews or people who receive the awards are getting. So their voices are not heard. But it's the crew who are often the ones who are losing their lives, end quote. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's similar to how, uh, like, maintenance staff in, uh, you know, big buildings are often just, you know, uh, segmented to to invisibleness uh, and often just disregarded. And basically, uh, you know, this kind of... The, the purpose is to invisibilize this labor to, you know, uh, lower the the possible compensation or any other sorts mm-hmm. of, of reasons. But, uh, yeah, I mean, solidarity with all of these workers who end up in these sorts of positions because it's fucked up. It's uh, unacceptable that these sort of things are coming to pass. And there's no need for this to happen anymore. You don't have to use real guns on set. Fake guns are good, and they have CGI for the the actual, you know, blast. You don't you don't need to use real guns on set anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Well... Our next story is on the rail industry. So while President Biden and the Democrats have touted the addition of a couple unpaid, extremely difficult to use sick days in the deal that was forced on rail workers late last year, a new lawsuit filed against Union Pacific, one of the monopoly freight carriers in the western U.S., shows how just how far the company will go to keep its workers from taking time to rest when sick. The lawsuit filed in Texas alleges that uh, the rail car- carrier routinely hires private investigators to snoop on workers when they are taking unpaid sick leave and fire them if they ever leave their home. It's not an exaggeration. The suit says that the policy has made Union Pacific, Union Pacific workers afraid to take their legally mandated unpaid leave under FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, when they need it. The suit revolves largely around the case of Duran Rutledge, who was fired by Union Pacific after they claimed he was abusing medical leave while taking time off to recover from a back injury. The company claims it follows the FMLA guidelines uh, and only disciplines workers when they violate it, but the practice of hiring private investigators seems to debunk that argument basically in its entirety. Rutledge worked for Union Pacific for over a decade and had... uh, had to take eight months off back in 2017 after suffering a back injury on the job as a very common as is very common with these sorts of injuries even after recovering it would continue to have flare-ups uh you know the pain would would still come back uh which were debilitating for Rutledge and and it meant that he needed to take additional time off from time to time depending on his pain levels 
While he was on leave for one of these flare-ups, Union Pacific hired, uh, you know, a surveillance person to uh, follow him around, and uh, they fired him, claiming it was because he was able to go to the grocery store and therefore was faking his injury. <sighs> yeah, oh, man. yeah. Folks who are law who are listeners of both our show and the Death Panel will be well familiar with the. Uh, pathological obsession with waste, fraud, and abuse that so many members of the ruling class or even their, like, petty bourgeois servants have. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I mean, as is expected, I'm sure, you know, most of our listeners understand this, uh, Rutledge countered that feeling well enough to walk around the store for a few minutes was not the same as being able to operate a mile-long freight train. But the company said, fuck you. And just uh, decided yeah. to make the termination of his employment, you know, official. Uh, Nick Thompson, yeah. the lawyer representing the workers, pointed to the fact that the that the very reason the company is so adamant about rail workers being available twenty four seven is that in the pursuit of profit, the major freight carriers have slashed the workforce down by thirty percent. Quote. Hiring more people is expensive. Mistreating the employees you have costs nothing, end quote. Uh, He said, connected to the horrendous treatment of rail workers and the rise in derailments, quote, railroads are putting profits ahead of everything, ahead of safety, ahead of employees' well-being, and we're seeing the results of that, end quote. Yeah, and the thing with this one that drives me so mad is that, like, not that this would be good if this was paid sick leave, but again, this is FMLA leave, which is unpaid. So they're literally firing him because he is recovering from an injury that they are not paying him for, but because he's not available to drive the train and they spent so much of their efforts cutting down to the abs- like way fewer workers than they need so that they can get them they can overwork their existing employees to make more money and that this this guy recovering from a back injury is fucking that plan up even though again it's unpaid leave and yet they are still spending the money they'll hire a private investigator but they won't hire another goddamn conductor like- i think it's also important to to remember that this happened while working in the train industry like this, yeah. like this, this injury is the fault of this company, and right, like they're punishing him for the thing that they did. Like, frankly, I'm like, this is sort of, I'm like, should he be on like disability more likely than this? Like, uh, even if not, all of this should be paid leave from the company. It like it should be paid leave because the worker should have it anyway, but also because it's like the injury is because of the job. That you are making him do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and it's workers awful. at other major carriers have been fighting against uh, this campaign to slash safety and maintenance for years. A recent Yahoo News story interviewed Lance Johnson, a former Norfolk Southern conductor for 25 years who was fired in 2021 over a dispute with the company's attempts to ignore safety issues. Johnson, who operated out of the St. Louis area, has had informed a supervisor that his locomotive had defective brakes. 
pretty reasonable. You should definitely make sure your brakes aren't defective. Uh, the yeah. supervisor ordered him to use the locomotive anyway, and then he refused due to the obvious danger and then was fired. Uh, he has since filed the whistleblower complaint against the company since he was fired for raising a safety issue. The company claims that he was fired for a, quote, insubordinate, threatening, and profane outburst towards his supervisor, end quote. Um, I'm sorry, but uh, justified anger seems pretty reasonable. Uh, Really, that is just complaining about work conditions. This is also like direct violation of the NLRA. Well, I the rest of the railroad workers aren't under the NLRA. So I wonder what sort of protections they have under the Railway Labor Act. That's the thing. They can't file a ULP under the NLRA because they're not covered under it. But look, yeah, if 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 you're a train conductor and you're you find out the tra- the brakes are defective on your locomotive and your supervisor tells you to drive it anyway, you should be legally allowed to have a insubordinate, threatening, and profane outburst against them because they are telling you to put your life and the life of everyone in the path of that train at horrendous risk for their own profit. Yeah. So I think a profane outburst is a more than a reasonable response to that. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I'm ready for a, are you fucking kidding me? Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, another suit from around the same time in 2021 filed against Norfolk Southern shows that after two workers notified the company uh, of its uh, on its own ethics hotline that they had been ordered by their boss to remove tags identifying two rail cars as defective. Uh, after they reported that issue, they themselves were hit with safety complaints with no evidence and they were disciplined for filing these complaints. HR is wow. not on your side ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, this is kind of a, a trend because since 2012, Norfolk Southern has slashed its workforce to the bone, cutting employment by 40% more than any other carrier. Carrier In the same period, accidents have nearly doubled, increasing 80% in just a decade. Yeah, like, it's just so funny to me that they're just like, no, we're just, we're making the railroads more efficient. And then it's like, okay, then you, so you cut your employment by 40% and your accident rate went up 80%. And you're telling me there's no relationship between those two numbers. It's clear, clearly just, you know, a coincidence. The, you know, with climate change, the air is a different heaviness. And <laughs> yeah, that's so what it is. <laughs> it's it, climate change is sending many more turtles to try and cross railroad tracks and those are just causing derailments that's what's going on it's not it's not at all the understaffing or the neglect of safety or the refusal to pay for maintenance it's not those things yeah of course <laughs> not we, you know we got to get these uh, turtles in there uh, you know in these ninja classes so that they are <laughs> are too busy to go out there on the train tracks yeah uh, and and so <laughs> like there the funny thing is their accident rate Norfolk Southern isn't even, surprisingly, isn't even the highest among the carriers. The highest goes to Union Pacific, (laughs) the company we were just talking about in the other story. And in the past five years alone, 267 Norfolk Southern employees, presumably the all 267 remaining employees since the rest have been fired in order to make the uh, system more efficient, 
uh, they have filed similar whistleblower complaints, which is double the number of complaints of neighboring rail carrier BNSF. Certainly no, uh, you know, paragon of safety at all themselves. In that same period, where again, they slashed their workforce by 40%, and all these derailments have happened, Norfolk Southern paid out $18 billion in buybacks and dividends to its shareholders. And a vice investigation that was recently done found that over 2,000 complaints have been lodged with OSHA by rail workers, uh, whistleblower complaints, over the last decade. And then over the last five years, between 2017 and 2022, 85% of whistleblower complaints reviewed by OSHA from rail workers were just dismissed. And fewer than 2% resulted in OSHA actually taking direction against a rail carrier directly. The remaining 13% were settled with the company. And rail carriers are using this. This is some staggering numbers. They're using this to say, oh, look, the rate of whistleblower complaints in recent years has gone down. That means we have made the rails safer. It's like, or, or, or perhaps... Perhaps the reason that the complaints have declined is that when they do send them in, OSHA either ignores them or dismisses them. And when they raise the concerns to the company's own ethics hotline, they themselves are disciplined. So what incentive has either the government or the company that owns it uh, like put in place for anyone to report anything when they're just likely to get attacked in response to it? Yeah, I mean, if anything, this is uh, purposefully exacerbating the dangerous conditions, uh, presumably to increase profit levels, uh, Mm -hmm. the sole goal of these private institutions, which should not exist. uh, Railroads should be a state function. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so we do have a quote here from... Uh, Jeff Kurtz, a former engineer of BNSF and a union officer at the BLET who told Vice, quote, the system is set up for you to fail and it is set up so um, and it's set up so it's pretty well foolproof, end quote. And that I mean, that is pretty clearly understood through even just these statistics alone. But with all of these stories along with it, it just is clear as day that these companies are are criminal organizations. Yeah. And it, it also shows that like the railway labor act doesn't just hurt railway workers like by, you know, obviously preventing them from striking and putting their unions into a basically impossible position from a legal perspective. It hurts the whole country. Like the, the decrepit state of our rail system, these, these derailments that we hear about every day now that there's so many that it's like averaging three every single day, uh, the deadly chemical spills, the high shipping costs from the profiteering from their monopoly position, the spilling Again, of the like, soil from the actual East <laughs> Palestine disaster. Right. right. And of course the constant injuries and fatalities of the workers and, you know, even just pe- innocent bystanders who are hurt by this, you know, cost cutting from these companies, All of that ties back to the Railway Labor Act and the attempts by the state to crush the power of the rail unions. Because when we see in other countries where you have powerful unions with a credible strike threat, like the RMT in the UK, 
They're able to stop companies from slashing safety and maintenance budgets. We just saw the agreement between the RMT and Network Rail. They were able to stop the attempts to slash safety that the government had even been trying to push through. And they were able to do that because they were able to make their organizational threats real by striking. <laughs> and, and so it is the Railway Labor Act and the, and the curtailing of these workers' rights that puts all of our safety at risk. And so it's really in all of our interests to end that regime, to nationalize the railroads, and to give the rail workers the real ability to strike like all the rest of us. Absolutely. And speaking of all the rest of us uh, and unionizing, uh, we're going to move. I guess <laughs> they, right. they already were union, and so maybe that's a mediocre segue. You're going to have to deal with it. We're struggling without John here. You know, we, we don't jo- have as much comic relief as we truly need. And what we need you to do is we need you to get out there and unionize your shops so that we can improve working conditions for everyone. That's right. (laughs) People who are doing that, see, now that's a better segue, uh, (laughs) are REI workers around the nation uh, in Boston, uh, Eugene, Oregon, and Durham, which uh, I, where is Durham? Durham, North Carolina. North Carolina. (laughs) Yeah, Raleigh, Durham, you'll sometimes hear it's the Raleigh, Durham area. Those are words that are not registering in my brain very well. Anyway, Um, (laughs) the retail union wave continues to gain steam with workers in REI. Filed not one, not two, but three uh, election petitions at stores on opposite sides of the country this week. The first one on Wednesday, April 12th, where REI workers in Boston announced that they were filing for for union representation with UFCW Local 1445. The announcement of their drive on Twitter uh, had a little quote with it from the workers that said, quote, REI Boston is coming together to have a say in the decisions that impact us daily. We are organizing our union to fight for consistency in hours, sustainable wages, and improved safety, st- improved store safety. We seek greater transparency and accountability from the co-op we run and love, end quote. They've asked for voluntary recognition, but of course, I mean, the recognition is basically un- more than unlikely. It's just not going to happen. I don't, I don't want to give any sort of tepid uh, <laughs> like, language right. on this. <laughs> uh, so they have also, and they expect this as well, so they have simultaneously filed for a union election because they are also not under any illusions that the company is going to stop its streak of union busting. Yeah, so... The workers, they, they, when they submitted this letter to management announcing their drive and their supermajority support, they specifically, and I love this about their messaging, they, they basically throw REI's messaging right back at it. And they're like, look, you guys say you have all these progressive values and that you're a co-op and that then, okay, put your money where your mouth is. Recognize our union and work with us to improve conditions, saying, quote, we want to say in decisions that affect our livelihoods and contractually protected benefits to give us the peace of mind needed for a sustainable work-life balance, end quote. That's what all workers want. Yeah, absolutely. And they point out that often when they'll raise concerns or suggestions, which is, of course, the same, the thing the bosses say every time when they hear about a union drive, oh, no, no, you don't need that. That'll get between the ability for you to communicate directly with us. If you have a problem, we have an open door. You can come and talk to us anytime. 
And then you go do that. And they're like, oh, thank you so much for the initiative to yeah. care about this. I'm going to talk with regional about this and you never hear about it ever either that or they're like oh well yeah clearly you're very stressed we're gonna cut your hours (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i suppose that's also a very common option but um yeah they say that they've tried to raise issues with the the store and make suggestions to try and improve how things are done in in their workplace and store management often shrugs them off as saying well you know that sounds great but uh it's corporate policy and that's that's above our pay grade we can't change it sorry can't do anything and so, you know, uh, eventually the workers are like, well, this whole open door policy isn't doing anything for us. Maybe we need, uh, maybe we need the, a closed shop policy instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Boston workers have also called out the company for re- refusing to pay a wage that they can survive on in one mm-hmm. of the country's most expensive cities, uh, and provide regular sustainable hours, you know, similar to what I was just kind of alluding to. Owen Schmidt, a worker at the store, told the Boston Globe, quote, they say they really value our differences, our diversity. It's all well and good for the company to support these things, but, you know, if you're supporting your trans employees, but but your trans employees can't afford to live in the city anymore. I think that's hollow. I think that's hollow as hell, end quote. And that's that's very true. I, I think that uh, almost every company that tries to, you know, tout its progressive nature is always leaving people with less than what they need. REI, despite claiming they support the rights to workers of workers to organize, dispatched a corporate st- dispatched corporate staff to the Boston store on Monday to hold captive audience meetings, attempting to convince the workers not to unionize. Then, Boo. yeah, yeah, Cleo, <laughs> fuck you, REI. Uh, but then on the West Coast, the very same day, 53 workers at REI in Eugene, Oregon, also filed to join UFCW and local 50, uh, no, not 55. 555 um finally on friday april 14th the third new union rei store announced their union drive with the ufcw this time again in durham north carolina in this announcement for their union the store's 37 workers are organizing with ufcw local 1208 Uh, And they said, quote, we imagine an REI Durham where we all have consistent and adequate hours, access to affordable health care coverage, safer working conditions, wages that match the cost of living and enough staff to do our jobs effectively. We imagine an REI Durham where people can stick around and build a career we imagine in rei durham that is a that is as diverse as the community in which we live end quote something that every worker should be fighting for yeah i mean this is super exciting because now you know there's now seven union rei locations you've got new york city berkeley cleveland chicago boston eugene and Durham. And these three new stores that all popped up in the last week uh, bring it. And this is kind of weird because it's like it's a 4-3 split between two unions, the UFCW in Berkeley, Eugene, Boston, and Durham, and the RWDSU in Soho, Chicago, and Cleveland. But that's not it's not as if one of those is the Teamsters and one of those is the UAW because like the RWDSU is like kind of a semi-autonomous like related union to the UFCW. So they're all working together, which rocks. Uh, you know, we love to see that. And to see, because again, this is seven stores from nothing in like a year. 
And it's not that, you know, it's not after I feel like sometimes people's expectations got a bit recalibrated with like the Starbucks workers United incredible success with such a huge brand, but Mm -hmm. seven stores in a year out of 168 total throughout the country. That's a, that's a lot, especially in retail, which is so hard to unionize in. So I think this is super encouraging. We just got three stores in a week. If they show that they can all win their, their drives and they go from nothing to seven stores in a year, it's I think that's going to give so much more ammunition to organizers around the country at REI stores to be like, okay, so New York city and Berkeley, those weren't like a one and two off where you've got like, you know, these, these progressive cities that are more pro union or whatever. It's like, no, Cleveland, Chicago, Eugene, Oregon, Durham, North Carolina. This is the whole country, which is really, really encouraging. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of things that are really encouraging, like we have got to talk more about all of these university unions. (laughs) We're not talking about them at all, folks. We never cover academic unions on this show. It seems like they're showing up in our reports more and more every single week, I think. But uh, yeah, uh, it's been super cool. This week, we're going to be talking about Dartmouth grad workers who won their union. Actually, I think that we did actually do a very brief announcement Mm -hmm. of their drive a couple weeks ago. But I think mostly because I, I really like the acronym for their name. <laughs> oh, yeah, GOLD, the GOLD Union. I remember this now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, the unstoppable wave of grad student workers continues this week with workers at Dartmouth voting 261 to 33, 89%, which is actually the the consistent <laughs> average of number of the votes because we got some uh this is a little on it's not unrelated it's just not in my notes that there was posted in the discord a, all of the different grad like uh different university elections and stuff like that that were happening and i did all the math on it there the average uh voter turnout is 89% yes in these things so they're they're just par for the course in this <laughs> par for the course with their 90% union win <laughs> exactly exactly it's, that is I, what which we is want both it's true and fantastic. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The the union is called the Graduate Organized Laborers of Dartmouth, or GOLD. Yeah, it's very good. The union is affiliated with the UE, one of our favorite unions, as have many, uh, as many you know, other unions at universities have affiliated this past year. And now there are 800 grad students that are represented by the UE officially. The grad student workers had asked for voluntary recognition back in February when they announced their supermajority support, but the school administration refused, as expected, claiming that the union would be, quote, counterproductive. Uh, I want a little bit of a citations on that one. What do you mean counterproductive? For whom? Whose interests are, are these counterproductive <laughs> right. to? Yeah, well, and they said that, and then they went to ex- like pretty severe lengths. Uh, to try and stop the union. So, like, they clearly did think it would be counterproductive specifically for their pocketbooks, I think. Uh, (laughs) The mechanism they used for this is also so annoying and frustrating, and I hate that companies keep... you know what I'm just going to say? Companies. I'm going to keep saying that even though it doesn't technically apply to them because they're (laughs) acting like one. Exactly, Uh, exactly. um, They tried to use a form of, like, legalistic manipulation of the bargaining unit to, like 
torpedo the Union Drive before it actually got off the ground. They petitioned to change the eligibility of who could count for the bargaining unit to the NLRB in attempting to disqualify over half of the 800 grad students at the school. And the NLRB was like, no, <laughs> we, you can't do that. These workers are all eligible. But the administration refused to listen to the NLRB and said, okay, fine. We don't care. We disagree. We say they're not eligible. We say the NLRB, you say you're full of shit. So fine. We, you go ahead. You have your, your vote. And the NLRB doesn't agree with us. We're going to challenge every single ballot from any of the workers who we have deemed are not eligible for this bargaining unit with the goal that if all the workers vote and they've disqualified over half the workers, that they'll be able to get the election either thrown out or at the very least delayed for an extremely long time where they're like, well, we challenged 450 ballots and we need to have a hearing over every single one of them. But what I love about this is that the workers are like, okay, well, we see what you're doing, assholes. Guess what? We're just going to call your bluff. And they just told the workers who the, uh, who the school had declared were ineligible, they're like, fine, just don't vote. And so they had only the, the workers who were identified as eligible by Dartmouth vote, and they still got 90% victory. And now, because of that, the, there were not enough of the quote-unquote ineligible people who voted, so Dartmouth can't challenge them. So they, so those workers <laughs> they claimed were ineligible are now part of the union, even though they didn't vote, because of this stupid attempt to disqualify them. <laughs> I love this. This is some really great uh, st- strategy by this union. Like, you know, uh, you know we're going to win either way. So fuck yeah. you, deuces, and those deuces are one middle finger on each hand. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, like, PhD ecology student Jean Viev Gobel told the Dartmouth, which is the school's, uh, you know, student paper earlier this year, "quote It's not a question of whether they can afford to give us what we're asking for. They really don't want us to have leverage that we've never had before." End quote. And a hundred percent correct on that. Uh, and and this attempted union busting just underlines that and just sh- and because all it did was delay the inevitable, but in the same time expose to every single member of the grad student union where the administration really stands. And now the school has to negotiate with the union after trying this bullshit disqualification stunt. So it's like, congratulations, guys, you just made the students more mad. Well done, brilliant bargaining strategy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, this is also really consistent with other sorts of, uh, like, really popular union drives where the repression is always a boomerang that comes back and hits them in the face. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, what the workers are, are fighting for. The key goals of the workers for their first union contract reflect very similar issues facing other grad student unions around the country. As reported by the, the Dartmouth, you know, the school's student paper, as Dan mentioned, uh, PhD student workers re- uh, receive a stipend of only $35,000 per year. It's surprising. Surprisingly, that 35000 is actually just about a living wage for the, for the area because Dartmouth is in a very – it's in a small college town on the New Hampshire-Vermont border. Oh, I, I just wanted to point that out because usually these, these stipends are starting from a point way below the living wage. Now, this is only just barely a living wage. They should be paid more, but – 
I that was just kind of a surprising point. I think it's really purely because of how rural well, the area that Dartmouth is. And in I think is. that the the living wage thing, like though it is a much better metric than some other things, it's gonna. Uh, I I'm really hoping that this falls in the same uh, like historic category of the fight for fifteen, in that it was right. too small of a demand in the first place. Right, and 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 so the school. It's funny. This so they're making thirty five thousand now. And the stipend is increasing to 40000 this year, which clearly the only reason that's happening is the pressure from the union drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so workers are going to fight to improve that even more and get an even a, a better salary so that they can actually have a decent life and not just, you know, live, uh, which is great. And, of course, they're fighting for better conditions for international students, including for the school to provide assistance in getting visas for immediate family members and very importantly, providing subsidies for child care. And this all also ha- comes uh, just about a year after Dartmouth's undergraduate student workers voted unanimously to unionize their student worker collective. So, uh, you know, a lot of really good organizing energy at Dartmouth. Yeah, and I think that especially this is really important. If you are well-paid, it is more important that you unionize because when you set that standard when you set that standard you do raise the standard for many other people you know a lot of these other universities are saying hey look at this other university they get paid this you can have that like getting paid more is a good thing because you then can be compared to and people can be like i want that we deserve that you other people have gotten that that's going to be ours now so I think that, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit with the more. Yeah, I don't know if it's but more it is, important. It is, yeah, because all you, yeah, no, I, I get it, it. It is very important, though. You're right because, as you said, like it's not. It doesn't just affect you. It affects all the workers, which is, of course, you know, why this is a collective project and 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 why we want to, you know, fight in a democratic manner. But this this rules. Love to see this energy from from Dartmouth. But you know, it's 2023. Uh, so two stories about academic unions is simply not enough for one show. <laughs> yeah, no. We have to have a third one. Well, and I mean, speaking of the Student Workers Collective at Dartmouth, uh, that we actually have a similar story out of the University of Oregon, where students have uh, filed for an independent union. Uh Basically, you know, as we've covered, you know, the grad student unions, faculty unions, support staff unions, uh, we don't often talk about the other kinds of support staff, which is student worker unions. At uh, the University of Oregon, student workers that do tutoring, run daycare, or resident hall advisors, there's a bunch of different jobs that they do, are all coming together to unionize. And, you know, we've seen lots of UE elections, the UAW, uh, more established union. But, you know, there's also this rising popularity these days of forming independent unions and then also forming wall-to-wall independent <laughs> unions, which is, I think is a really, really great goal. Uh, these student workers are are fighting to get a pay raise from the basically the state's minimum wage of thirteen fifty, and not all of the workers are paid this. There are some that are paid, you know, eighteen, and depending on the position, if there's there's like a whole pay scale that is pulled from the actual university itself. But many workers are paid the state minimum wage. Um, they also are paid every once a month, 
And so they're fighting That's for really more weird. frequent paychecks. Now, the one of the things that was pointed out in some of these articles is that depending on when the students get these jobs, it could take over 40 days to get their paychecks because of like maybe coming in in the middle of a pay period. It's fucking insane. Now, there is a law literally against this that makes it so that you can't pay workers more than 35 days after the time of working. So the university has been literally breaking the law in certain cases. They're also fighting... Criminal syndicate, University of Oregon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, They're also fighting for anti-harassment policies, uh, employment protection, as well as some other issues. But when it comes to employment protection, the fight is basically an immediate one, as one of the worker organizers was fired for eating food at the end of the night right before that food was going to be composted. Wait, what? I, I'm, I'm confused. What were they? What were they fired? They were fired for eating? Eating? F- <laughs> no, for stealing food, Dan. They were taking it. They were stealing the food that was about to end up in the compost pile. If that was a reason for a good reason for firing people. I would have been fired every single shift of the time that I worked at the university concessions uh, <laughs> at my college. All, every one of us took food after the end of the night. Cause if you're just going to throw it away, why wouldn't you? Well, and exactly. I think the point that you're bringing up here is pretty well uh, highlighted by the workers themselves who said that the, the rule was just not previously enforced. And the oper- and and I mean the university is basically just using this opportunistically to fire worker organizer Will Garahan, who had uh, recently been quoted in an article in the Nation. How mm. far before that? The night before, the, literally the day mm. before, their name shows up in the paper, and suddenly they're fireable. Hmm. The school starts getting some press in the national media that they don't like, and then suddenly this person gets fired for a rule that had been technically on the books but never enforced before. Damn. Uh, I mean, I know this is in Oregon, but I guess they're somehow getting like the influence aura coming off of Washington coming out of the Starbucks drive because that's very classically in line with some of the bullshit excuses that Starbucks has used to fire worker organizers as well. And of course, you know, we were certainly never surprised to see bosses using those tactics, but it's always extremely disappointing when it's a public institution that like nominally shouldn't be doing that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the school itself, says that it's totally impartial to the union, uh, which is uh, kind of given the lie to just by that firing. But just, uh, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that that's just one example because the students have reported being told not to wear union pins or discuss the union, aka working conditions, on the job. On top of that, some union organizers have been told they can't talk to academic classes or promote card signings on on certain campus events because the, the union is quote political and <laughs> on top of that i mean we don't know for certain who's doing this but union materials have been mysteriously removed very often so it's so funny like of all of the clauses of the nlra it's the button one of the simplest and clearest is the button clause and yet bosses just can't stand the fact that workers are not just allowed, but legally protected in the ability to wear union apparel. 
and it's it is just so funny how like that just drives so many bosses just absolutely out of their minds that that the, the workers are allowed to do that and that legally they're not allowed to stop them. Now, of course, functionally, they can have all this sorts of discipline, but these are some of the easiest ULPs for the NLRB to rule on because they're just like, okay, well, they wanted to wear a union pin. Is there any reason, like, are they a doctor and they're going into surgery and they can't wear that because it would be a safety problem? Oh, no. Uh, let's see. Are they like a fancy waiter and they have to wear a very specific uniform or something to fit in with a theme? Even are then, they I think, an I think, actor? I, th- I actually, I actually think that union pins are allowed even in those circumstances. So. I think they are too, but <laughs> it's just like, it's nothing, anything close to that. There's like, we just want to ban them because we don't like them. And it's just like, guys, like, yeah, I know labor law is basically fake here, but you're going to lose that ULP. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and another thing, I mean, the students are trying to get more pay because at least a third of student workers say that they are food insecure and rely on things like the university food bank and this uh percentage of people who end up in this condition are uh much higher when they are students of color imagine that racism you know rearing its head once again uh the union says that another factor that they are fighting for is the fact that international students are forced to work on campus and shouldn't be forced to live on such low pay and uh you know the article all said if they they win. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say when they win their union recognition, they will be the largest student worker union in the country with three th- with about 3,000 members and over 2,000 students have already signed union authorization cards and a petition has been filed for the election. So they'd be the biggest like undergrads. Undergrad, student, yeah. Student sorry. Thank you for that clarification. Which, I mean, yeah, 3,000 members, that... Uh, would be uh, at least top 10 of the year, I think. Maybe squeak into the top five. So, yeah, yeah, that'd be... I mean, the fact they already have two-thirds signed up on their cards, great. Love to see it, especially with a bargaining unit that big. Um, So this is super cool. Uh, You know, all solidarity with these student workers. And, you know, we've already got this huge intense wave of grad worker organizing. You know, if we start seeing that same rate with with undergrad student workers, I mean, the university is going to become the most heavily unionized space in the country. Yeah, likely. But also, speaking of top five, how about the top five memes (laughs) of the week? That's right. What a segue. So (laughs) our first one, this one's a classic. You've probably seen it. And I don't just mean the movie that it's referencing. I mean the meme itself. So, uh, you know, we've got, a screen cap from the end of Monsters Inc. of 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 the big you know the CEO of the t- the the title Monsters Inc. being taken away for his malfeasance, and then it's captioned in Monsters Inc. 2001. The wealthy CEO of Monsters Inc. is held accountable for his actions. This is to remind the audience that the movie is a work of fiction. <laughs> I I love this one because uh y- you know you get that kind of feeling so often hearing all of these labor stories like we know as you know people who've listened to this show a lot or people associated with labor or even just us as hosts that this is not the reality but you know as a kid you grow up you're like oh yeah bad people are held accountable no (laughs) right no right exactly you know those fun myths that you tell children 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, our next one is a little discussion between a, a, basically an interview and like three inter or no one interviewee and three interviewers, and it's a little conversation. And the people on the company side are saying, "We offer a competitive salary," and then the worker says, or the potential worker says, "Great, how much is it?" And then they say, "Don't worry about it. It's competitive. Anyways, what skills do you have?" And the worker says, oh, I have amazing skills. And then they say, great, can you tell me more about them? And then uh, she says, don't worry, they're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, I would still be a hell of a lot more likely to believe somebody who told me they had amazing skills but wouldn't tell me what they were than somebody who told me that they paid a competitive salary and wouldn't tell me what what it was. It's true, it's true, (laughs) it's true. Um, and the other thing they never say though, it's like, oh, it's competitive. Well, what does that mean? It's just like, we drive our salary down to as low as our competition will let us is what they really mean. Even though it's not what they want to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I always want to be like, all right, let's open the books on this. Can you, uh, let me know who your competitors are and what they're paying. Right. But they never <laughs> want to see that, but you got to send them your full resume and a cover letter and six references and certificates in a programming language that hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> so yeah. yeah but uh in a complete shifting of gears <laughs> uh this is very much uh, a reference to some stuff that was going around last week but also for the last uh 75 years <laughs> um so this is a a loading screen ostensibly i think this is in the same style as um oblivion uh, elder scrolls so you've got it's a sepia tone but the image is not from the elder scrolls although the the font i believe is and it's a picture of the dalai lama and then the caption you know it's 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 a loading screen so it's in the middle of loading it's got those rotating quotes it, it, depending on how slow your computer is you may see a whole lot of them before the whole goddamn map actually loads uh-huh. but in this one it's be careful who you trust some people aren't always who they seem <laughs> yeah, I think uh, having a, a long history of feudal uh, and, and slave-like relations might lead you to uh, not be very trustworthy. And then also uh, abusing children re- more recently, being— uh, Yeah, I mean, the, Dal- the Dalai Lama is bad, folks. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. Like, you are—people who are rooting for, for them, for, it's like you are rooting for the most vicious feudal order— like that still has adherence. Like that's like rooting for you know the weirdo Habsburgs who still somehow exist and post on Twitter about how they need to bring back the Habsburg dynasty in Europe. That's the same thing. <laughs> or if there was a if there were still relatives of like Belt of King Leopold in Belgium, like that would be the sort of thing that the Dalai Lama is in the same group with. It's because like feudal Tibet was a really bad place for everyone who was not uh, in the upper level, like priest hierarchy. You had people whose limbs would get hacked off for being insubordinate to the priests. Uh, They would, I mean, they would literally like do scrolls on like human skin from slaves that were owned. So yeah, uh, the Dalai Lama is bad. The communist party freed Tibet. It's already free. You don't need a free Tibet sticker. It was freed in 1949. That's right. That's Uh, right. And, and uh, yeah, don't listen to the Dalai Lama. He's been supported by the CIA for over 70 years. That's correct. Well, to get back to our, our labor memes from our, our, our more uh, 
I guess everything is political, but you know. Anyway, uh, this next one is a really nice little like comic. It's a four panel. We've got this person walking up to a uh, someone holding a clipboard in hell, and they said, uh, "Huh, your name's not on our list." And then this person says, "Of course it's not, because I don't belong here. I worked on the Starbucks union busting campaign." And then the person puts down their clipboard, and then escorts them down to extra hell. <laughs> Absolutely. There's like a sub basement down there for like Littler Mendelssohn and like Morgan Lewis and the Labor Relations Institute and the Pinkertons and all these other, you know, enemies of the working class. Just the worst scumbags out there. Yeah. Absolutely. You do not have to respect them in any way. Yeah. (laughs) And then for our most British meme, ever put this one has gotten on, a lot of reaction and a lot of questions on on facebook yeah yeah i i posted this one because i just thought it was so good uh and this is almost not even a meme it's only a meme because it's uh got this kind of british touch to it and it's being related so this is a tweet from a do- dr steve taylor i don't know uh they said junior doctor pay explained 2008 uh, Well, I guess, should I say, so at the bottom, there are two cans of beans. The 2008 beans says they're 40 pence, and then the 2023 beans say they're $1.40. Or no, I'm sorry, one pound 40 pence. And uh, in 2008, junior doctors could afford 24 tins of beans per hour. And now, in 2023, they can only afford 10 tins of beans per hour. Hashtag pay restoration. And this is actually just reporting information in a very funny British sort of way. And I loved it. This is also, I honestly think, a very good way of illustrating what uh, purchasing power is. As a way of explaining, like, how inflation functions without just saying, oh, a dollar is worth a dollar 20 or it's worth 50 cents. This is just like, okay, 15 years ago, you could buy 24 tins of beans every hour. Now you can only buy 10. That's immediate. That's visceral. You know what that means. I know what 10, because if you say to somebody, I know what 10 tins of beans look like on my shelves. Right, exactly. And so, you know, people always joke about the fact that capital Marx is always talking about, you know, like with this many yards of linen for a coat and all this other stuff. Well, Hey, those are relatable things. I know what a coat is. I know generally how much a coat costs. So, you know, if, 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 if I'm explained that either, you know, a worker has to work two hours to afford a coat and then a week later or, a, a, you know, a year later, they have to work four hours to afford a coat, then I know that their exploitation rate has doubled over that time. That's right. Whereas, that's right. And so that's why I very much appreciate the illustration of the decline of the pay of junior doctors in the UK via how many beans they can buy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you'd like to let us know how many beans you can buy with one hour's worth of labor, <laughs> you can jump in the Discord. Uh, also... Support us on Patreon, because we're an entirely listener-supported show. You can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You get a bunch of other information, including we have an old interview, you know, about the Royal Mail workers. If you want to go back and get some more more British content, you know, that's that's something to check out. And uh, write us a review somewhere. Uh, you know, even though John's not here, follow him on Twitter at Facebook Villain. And follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. You can listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. 
also John's not here, but still listen to that. And uh, uh, li- listen to Red Game Table. And then, as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Signals, 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 signals,